the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Our journey through the seven letters to the seven churches will continue here today on Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner, the church at Smyrna, and the church at Pergamum. Those two churches coming up next. Join us. The two churches we are focusing on today and tomorrow here on Abounding Grace are quite interesting, subtle contrasts. But as we begin our time together, we do so with a look at the church at Smyrna. Now, this is a church that does not receive any correction, but rather a faithful request to stand a little bit longer. And what is the second death? Well, that's where we begin today. Join us for Abounding Grace from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. Here's our teacher and pastor now, Gary Wagner, with today's broadcast. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. This is something that takes spiritual ability to understand. But he who gets the victory shall not be hurt by the second death. Now, what is the second death? Well, most people don't know that the Bible speaks of a first death and a second death, and it talks about a first resurrection and a second resurrection. And you can find that in John 5. The first death is the first death that Adam experienced. God said, Adam, the moment you eat of the tree, you will die. The moment he ate, he didn't die, at least physically. He lived actually another 900 years But he did die spiritually. So the first death in the human race was a spiritual death. And the second death is our physical death at the end of our lives. The first death we are saved from by regeneration. And that's the first resurrection. And the second resurrection is the physical resurrection that saves us from physical death. It restores us to physical life. So he says, if you are faithful and continue to be so until the end, no matter how severe the persecution becomes, you'll not be hurt by that second death. When you die physically, however you die, you will not be hurt. You will be brought into the, my, he says, actual presence. I'm not saying death doesn't hurt. But there is no sting because you will then be in the presence of our almighty God. So today, God offers you the power of his resurrection in the very midst of evil and suffering and Satan's kingdom. And after you and I have suffered for a little while, Christ will give us the crown of life if we are faithful unto death. And now we come to the church of Pergamum. This is an interesting city. It was a very religious city. But to say it it was religious is not to say that it was Christian or even to say it was moral 
It is simply to say that it was religious. Because you see, they had all kinds of temples to pagan gods. There was a temple to Zeus. There was a temple to Athena. A temple to Dionysus. A temple to, I'm not sure I can say this correctly, Asclepius. As well as three temples dedicated to the worship of the Caesars. Pergamum was also a great center of intellectualism. In the ancient world, the great library that burnt down was in the city of Alexandria, Egypt. There was no library really to compare it to, except perhaps the library in Pergamon. It was uh, the second largest library in the ancient world, and and, uh, that library had approximately 200,000 volumes. In fact, there was so much writing and publishing going on in Pergamon that parchment was invented in that city. It was also a city of statism. And what is statism? Statism refers to that civil institution that acts like a messiah and seeks to save people and provide for them from cradle to grave, much like we have here today. Statism was connected to false worship, pagan religions all over the world, because their God was usually the head of the state. Therefore, a God's dominion all over the world was the state's dominion and control and was thus a totalitarian form of government throughout the world. Pergamum was a center of statism because it was the center of the Caesar cults all over Asia. And as I said, because there were at least three different temples dedicated to the Roman emperors in the city, it is also, was also a place where the church of the Lord Jesus Christ existed. Now notice how the sender of this letter, who is Jesus, identifies himself. He is the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now look at chapter 1, verse 16. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. So here you see that the sword that comes out of Jesus' mouth is a figure of speech for his word. Remember Paul talks about the sword of the Spirit, which is, he said, the word of God. Revelation 19 talks about the sword that comes out of Jesus' mouth by which he defeats his enemies. Again, it is the word of God. So here he identifies himself to the church at Pergamon as the one who has a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Which sword is greater than Caesar's sword? Now that's the thing to bear in mind. This was the center of totalitarian government. Satan's throne was there, represented in the status government headed by Caesar. And as great and as powerful as Caesar's sword was, by which he had conquered most of the world, the sword that comes from Jesus' mouth is far greater. And the Bible brings this out time and again. In the last part of Romans 8, it says, I am absolutely convinced that nothing in life or death, neither poverty nor sword, nor anything else can separate us from the love of God. And that word sword there has reference to the sword that is in the hands of political institutions 
as voracious as political institutions can be against the church, the sword of the state has no power to separate Christians from Christ. <coughs> also remember in Revelation 1.5, where Jesus is said to be the ruler of all the kings of the earth and the sword of the ruler of the kings of the earth is by far greater than the swords of any of the kings of the earth themselves. So that was a very strong and powerful statement for Jesus to say in reference to himself because what he is implying is that in order for the magistrate's sword to be uh, used justly, it has to be subservient to the sword of Christ. That if a civil magistrate does not use the sword in accordance with the word of God, it becomes a terror to those who do well. And also so, can a civil messianic complex be avoided and the focus of the civil magistrate be on justice rather than on the welfare of the people? So he wants them to remember that in this city, with totalitarian politics at its center, the sword, the word, the law, the government that Christ has is far superior to anything in Rome. Then he commends the church in Pergamon. He says, what I am sure are comforting words to them. He says, I know where you dwell, where you live, where Satan's throne is. And you held fast my name and did not deny your faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So here he says to this church, I know where you live. I know what's going on in the city. I know that Satan's throne is there. I know that Satan lives in that city, in the Caesar worship, in the status government. But you have nothing to fear as long as I am the Lord and King, the majestic one the high and holy one, the resurrected, glorified, exalted one. And I know where you live. He's going to tell them in chapter 13 that they are surrounded by beasts, that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is surrounded by terrible beasts that are not only enemies of the church, but enemies of the family and the enemy of all good men. He says, I know what is going on. I haven't forgotten you. I know life is rough in that city, but I also want you to know that I am fully conscious of what's going on. I know you live in a city where the magistrates are lawless, as far as I'm concerned. That is, they don't abide by my sword, but by the sword of Caesar. And the thing we learn is that lawless magistrates, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, are servants of Satan and are no friends of ours. Where a civil magistrate seeks to impose a law or derives its laws from another source of law other than almighty God, it becomes an instrument in Satan's hands. It becomes a servant of Satan. Rather like in our country, it is Republican or Democrat. A satanic state is one that institutes its own laws in place of God's laws. And one which seeks to usurp divine prerogatives that only belong to God himself. A satanic state will always persecute those beloved who obey God's law. 
I was talking to a man a while back who was talking about the tyranny of Satan and the tyranny of Stalin and, of course, many others. He said he was glad to live in a country where there were no tyrants and he was glad World War II ended tyranny in Europe. So I asked him if he knew what a tyrant is according to the Bible. Well, I told him a tyrant is a civil magistrate that seeks to impose upon a people another law other than the source of the law of God contained in Holy Scripture. He thought for a moment and he said, well, I... I guess you're right. I said, yeah, but you know what that means? It means that as long as I have been alive since 1951, I have lived under tyranny. Some leaders have been more tyrannical than others, but I have lived under one administration after another since Harry S. Truman to this present administration who have sought to impose upon us laws and policies that did not derive from the word of God. So a tyrant is not some mean guy that you think of like Pol Pot or Idi Amin or Hitler or Stalin. A servant of Satan that ends up being a tyrant is any civil magistrate who seeks to impose another law on a people other than the law of God. And in the book of Revelation, there are only really two groups of citizens. Now, make sure when you divide groups into citizens into groups, you get this straight. It is not between liberals and conservatives. It is not between Republicans and Democrats. Revelation 14.12 says, Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. So the two groups of citizens are those who obey the laws of God and keep their faith in Jesus. And then there are those who uncritically keep the laws of the state, no matter what the state tells them to do. Think on this. How many times have we criticized Nazi soldiers because they were asked Why did you do all those terrible things? And they said, we were only doing the things we were told to do. And yet in America, we say something very similar. Well, that is the law. It's it's what we're supposed to do. Yes, but we are not to do everything man tells us to do, beloved. We are to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. And our allegiance to the state is limited and defined by our superior allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ, the king over all other kings. So understand, when a state becomes tyrannical, it becomes satanical. And you can say, that is where Satan's throne is, which is where Satan lives. And the application we can make is, The law you submit to uncritically indicates your religious commitment. If you submit to the laws of the U.S. and the state of California without criticism, without discretion, without condition, forget about calling yourself a Christian. Because at that point, you are a status and your God is the civil magistrate. The only law that can be submitted to uncritically is the perfect law of Almighty God. 
You know, Paul had an unflinching attitude toward a lawless, satanic magistrate. I love what Christians are called in Acts 17, 7. These men who have upset the world have come here also, and Jason has welcomed them, and they act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, there is another king, Jesus. That was the description of Christians in the first century. So I ask you, does that describe us? If you had to get right down to it, and there would be a choice in your life to be either for Christ or Caesar, what would it be? One time when I was working in politics in Southern California, a congressman told me, if you want to make it in politics, and this was a man who considered himself a conservative Christian, he says, you have to choose between politics or Jesus. And I very nicely asked, which one are you going to go with, Christ or Caesar? So the point is, that is the basic attitude people have today who profess to be Christians. They will side with the state against biblically principled Christians, or might I say, true Christians, who are consistent to what they are supposed to believe. Now notice another comment. You held fast my name, verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you held fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So here is the second compliment. You have a strong faith in Christ's power and in Christ's promises and his sovereignty. You held fast to my name and what I have revealed about myself and who I am. You have not compromised that at all. You have made a strong doctrinal commitment to reveal the truth. You have not denied the faith. You stood firm even in the face of persecution and martyrdom. You didn't compromise your faith even in the days of Antipas, who, who tradition actually says was appointed bishop of Pergamon by the Apostle John. You have stood firm for the truth and for my sovereign name. Now, notice this Antipas. I look forward to meeting him someday. What is said about him is said about Jesus in the book of Revelation. He is given a title that is actually said of Jesus. He says, do not deny my faith even in the day of Antipas, my witness, my, faithfulness, my faithful one. Jesus, a couple of times in Revelation, is called my faithful witness. He's congratulating and complimenting these Christians because they are faithful even in the face of martyrdom. And remember, for the first couple of hundred years or more, it was normal in the life of Christian families to expect to be tortured at any minute. And there were 10 waves of persecution for the first 250 years of the Christian church. They were faithful even in the face of persecution by the state where Satan lives. In all of their martyrdom, like the martyrdom of Antipas, their faithfulness under fire was used to destroy Satan. Oh, Christ destroyed Satan and rendered him powerless by his death on the cross, says Hebrews 2. But now it says here that faithful martyrs like Antipas also have a share in keeping Satan underfoot. That the faithful martyrs are the seed of the church. Revelation 12.1 
and they overcame him, Satan, because of the blood of the Lamb, the death of Jesus, and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even to death. So how was Satan overcome in the life of the church at Pergamum? It was done through the blood of Christ, through faith in that blood, and through the blood of the martyrs. One of my favorite stories is about a Romanian evangelist several decades ago by the name of, I'm not sure how to pronounce this, it's T-S-I-N, I think it's just sin. But God used him to spread the gospel all over Romania by radio messages, audio tapes, and preaching. And he used every means at his disposal. Well, of course, he was arrested by the Soviet government that was in control of the state at that time, and they threatened his life. But he was not going to be silenced. Pastor Sin said, that's all right. As long, if you want to kill me, as long as you understand what you are doing. He said, your most powerful weapon, and he is speaking now to the Soviet state, is to kill me. He said, my most powerful weapon is to die. For when I die, all of my tapes will be baptized with my blood. And there will be far more people listening to the sermons of a martyr than of a living pastor. Well, they heed his warning. And they did not put him to death. But that was truthfully spoken. And it shows that Christ destroyed Satan with his death. And we keep him under our feet by our faithfulness. Even in the face of persecution. And if need, martyrdom. Now also understand the complaint that Christ had against the church at Pergamum. He says, you're compromisers. As great as they were, they were compromisers. Verse 14, I have a few things against you. Because you have there some who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. To eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So, you also have some who in the same way hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans who we looked at last week. And we don't really know a whole lot about them. But obviously from this, they were similar to those who followed the teachings of Balaam. Now, what he is saying to them is that they have compromised Satan's first assault. Assaults the church from outside, persecution, martyrdom. And when he fails... Then he assaults it from the inside by tempting the church to compromise. The persecution from the outside, the martyrdom of people like Antipas could break them. So Satan goes into the church, couldn't break them. And so uh, Satan goes into the church and starts corrupting them from within by tempting it to compromise. He's saying, in essence, this outward opposition, Satanic civil opposition has not harmed you, but you have fallen from within. And the compromise was with different kinds of antinomianism. Antinomianism, as I've said recently, is any view that is negative toward the law of God, that doesn't believe in its applicable, that it is applicable any longer, that doesn't want the culture to live by it, that doesn't want you and I as Christians to live by it. That is an opposition to God's law as something that is obscure and overly harsh and unjust. And there were people in the church there at Pergamon who were antinomians. They were turning the grace of God into lasciviousness, which Christ, of course, as he said, hates. 
They were saying, in essence, that grace is lawless. And there are no specific laws to which we are to adhere in this life. We are to believe the basic fundamentals of the Christian faith and and defend those to the death. But we also must make compromises with other worldviews and other philosophies of life so that we can be more relevant to our age and so we can communicate the faith better. And in a previous letter in chapter 2, Jesus says, I hate that kind of attitude that says you have to compromise the Christian faith to make it more palatable. Well, that's all the time we have. This has been Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner, the ministry of Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. It is our goal and desire that you would abound in grace through the preaching and teaching of God's Word. And that is why we come to you on a daily basis. Now, as we close out our time together, we also realize that some of these messages that are presented here on Abounding Grace are well worth reviewing again at your convenience. Maybe you joined us a bit late. Well, we have copies on CD. They're just $5. Mention today's date as you call or write to us. Here's how to get in touch with us. The phone number is 408-866-5607. That's 408-866-5607. You're welcome to also visit our website, learn a bit more about us. We're at reformedheritage.org. Again, reformedheritage.org. And then, of course, if you would love to partner with us, if you're feeling led of the Lord to become a financial partner with us as we continue this ministry here on this station, please write to us at PMB number 402. And the address is 1484 Pollard Road, Los Gatos, California, The zip code is 95032. Or, again, simply call us, 408-866-5607. That's 408-866-5607. You're also welcome to join us for worship. Sunday services here at Reformed Heritage Church are at 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. We meet at the Lone Hill Church 2 in the afternoon. Directions can be found at reformedheritage.org or by, again, calling 408 Eight six six five six zero seven. We thank you for joining us and trust we'll see you again next time we get together for another broadcast of Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner. Mm-hmm.